0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew. Book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. Just one verse this morning, because we're going to focus on the call of the author of this gospel, Matthew. Now, as we read scripture, sometimes, uh, I don't know if you're, you're like me, I hope you're not, but sometimes when we read scripture, we can kind of glide over stuff that doesn't seem as relevant, Right? those lists of chronology and names that are that are in Chronicles and, and Numbers. We kind of go, how many names can I mispronounce? And we kind of glide over it. Well, sometimes when we're reading the narrative of the Gospels, we can kind of pass over a verse because it doesn't seem like it's quite as important. But as I was reading this week, the, the Holy Spirit really just gave me a strong reminder of the depth of the Word of God and the fact that even in one verse that kind of seems like incidental information, there is a wealth of truth, and there are profound spiritual principles that we can learn even from just one verse. So as I was reading this passage this week, the light bulbs just kind of kept flashing on about some of the characteristics of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, being a follower is kind of a common theme in our culture, especially with the Explosion of social media. So I did some research this week. This was exciting research to see the the highest number of followers on three of the most popular social media apps. On Twitter, how many love Twitter? Shake your head no. On Twitter, the top twit or whatever they're called, I don't know what they're called, is um, singer Katy Perry. Katy Perry has 100 million followers. Second place is Justin Bieber with 98 million, followed by Barack Obama, Taylor Swift, and Rihanna. What a motley group that is. That's a strange collection of people. On Facebook, my favorite, he said with tongue in cheek. On Facebook, it's singer Shakira, who has 100 million followers, soccer star Cristiano Ronaldo, Eminem, the rapper, Rihanna again, and Vin Diesel. That's another really strange list. On Instagram, this is the celebrity edition. It's singer and actress Selena Gomez, who has an astounding 123 million followers. She's followed by Ariana Grande, Ronaldo again, Beyonce, Taylor Swift again, and Kim Kardashian. On Instagram, non-celebrity edition, the top 10 includes a guy who takes pictures of Star Wars stormtroopers in all sorts of locations, another who takes pictures of cats with money. How do people think this up? And then my favorite, a guy who takes pictures of Cheetos that look like objects and people. (laughs) Now, I'm not sure what we do with that information other than be incredibly concerned. But the fact is that people are very passionate about what they follow. They can't wait to retweet the latest post by a celebrity or text about what they heard and saw on social media. That's because identity, listen now, identity is in many ways formed by who and what we follow. Now I know that's true because the followers of these celebrities have made up nicknames for themselves, like Katie Cats and Swifties and Beliebers, not with a V, with a B. Beliebers, and and there's a whole Wikipedia page. I learned so much. There's a whole Wikipedia page dedicated to it, 237 groups listed with their nicknames. This is, uh, I counted this, this is the type of incisive, intense, in-depth research that they teach you in seminary. Go on Wikipedia and find 237 groups of nicknames of celebrities. Now these groups are very serious. They dress a certain way, they talk a certain way, they have websites, they have fan pages, they have group meetings, anything that will identify them as a follower. Now, it's interesting that, that the church both models this and struggles with being labeled by this concept. On one hand, there's pushback against expecting people to, to dress a certain way or act in a certain way while they're in church uh, because uh, even though we think maybe it shows a little bit more respect for the Lord, some people say, well, you shouldn't, you know, make it so narrow and you shouldn't expect people to, to act and dress a certain way because that would, be, that would be unfair. And yet there are whole groups, millions and millions and millions of people that say this is how you've got to do it. Now on the other side of that, the church, the, the trend in churches, especially megachurches, is to have their own unique identity and their own unique brand from how people dress and the terminology that's used to the fact that people identify themselves with a particular church or a particular movement or a, a ministry philosophy, which actually and sometimes can become more of a focus than Jesus Christ himself. So the bottom line is that we all have a need and a desire to identify with someone or something. And in doing that, we follow. We spend money, we spend time, we spend thought to stay close to that because it becomes important to us. Now for Matthew, chapter 9 of the book of Matthew, verse 9, he followed money. He was a tax collector. That was... His identity to the extent that even later in life, when he's left tax collecting and he becomes one of the twelve disciples, he's still referred to in one passage as Matthew the tax collector. Now that that wasn't a a person or a profession that that people had a love love for. There weren't Twitter followers of tax collectors because because they weren't seen as good. They weren't a part of society that anybody wanted to identify with, and and and. Matthew, at this point, chapter 9, would have been unpopular. An outcast, somebody that was reviled, somebody that, that, you know, people kind of look down on like, you're going to take our money, you're such a filthy thief. That kind, of, that kind of thinking. And I don't know if he cared or not, but it was the stigma attached to him. He loved money, he loved collecting money, and collecting money made him wealthy. So what he did every day, what he pursued, what he followed was to be a tax collector. And one day he's working in his hometown, Capernaum, the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. And he's kind of minding his own business, sitting in his booth, doing his thing. And here comes Jesus. Look at chapter 9 and verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, Jesus, at this point, early on in his ministry, he's still pretty new. He's still pretty controversial. And Matthew, because he's doing his job day after day, and because it's an important job in terms of the government, had probably heard the noise of the crowd. He had probably kind of heard a couple things about Jesus But he likely had not really had any interaction with him. He probably hadn't seen him. He probably certainly hadn't talked to him because there's no indication of that. Because he's preoccupied with collecting taxes. So as he's sitting in his booth and doing his thing and people are walking by and paying their taxes and grumbling and swearing under their breath at him because he's a tax collector. Jesus now comes up and Jesus doesn't walk by And Jesus doesn't look at him with derision as the crowds are all swarming around and everybody's moving through and here comes Jesus and Matthew's just kind of on the side of the road. Instead, Jesus stops. And he says just two words to Matthew. Look at the text. He says, follow me. Follow me. Now at that point, Matthew has a significant life-changing choice to make. He can either ignore and mock Jesus for such a, a bold command, or he can say, ah, that's kind of interesting. Guy came up to me and said, follow me. I've heard a little bit about him. Maybe I'll, I'll kind of think about that, consider that a little bit, and wait to make a final decision and see, see, see kind of the lay of the land. He can, he can ignore him. He can put him off. Or third, he can go follow and what he does and how he does it teaches us what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because in this one verse, verse 9, we can find a handful of characteristics that prove more than a passing interest. More than just, well, I kind of like Jesus. Jesus is my thing. The man upstairs, the big guy. He, he, yeah, I, I know Jesus. No, it goes way beyond that. This is a full commitment of heart and And mind, and I want to encourage you this morning as we kind of quickly go through these. I want to encourage you to take some notes. I want to encourage you to to connect to these characteristics that we have. Because as we look at them, the goal of the study is to measure our own response to Jesus' call to follow him. And whether we trust him with all our heart or whether you have rejected him all your life... Doesn't matter, because Jesus calls every person. He came to seek and to save that which is lost, which is everybody. So the call to salvation, the call to follow, is for every single person. So anybody can connect to this study this morning. So let's identify the characteristics. Now, go to notice again, and maybe if you're taking notes, just right at the top of the page, follow me. Because Jesus only says these two words. There's no background. There's no context, there's no persuasion. Jesus doesn't sit down and say, listen, I know you got a lot on you and kind of a background and let me just talk to you and we'll we'll have lunch a little bit, kind of get to know you a little. No, there's zero of that. He just walks up to Matthew and says, follow me. How would you respond? Or maybe the better question is, how do we respond? And notice, first of all, this will be very simple this morning. Notice, first of all, that Matthew does not respond arrogantly. Matthew does not respond arrogantly. Now, what would be the typical reaction if somebody came up to you and said this to you? Follow me. you like, who are you? Who are you to tell me what to do? You see, someone who hasn't trusted in Christ takes that posture every day because they don't believe that Jesus, if he is God, which they highly doubt, they don't believe that Jesus has the right to demand that we give up our control in order to submit to him. And and the concept can be so offensive to some people and, and such a, such an affront to their pride and their autonomy that they just reject him outright. But this can also be a hindrance to a person who says they believe in Jesus. Who goes to church, who, who kind of has a religiosity to them, but, but they have not yet yielded their whole life to him. They're not growing in spiritual maturity. And I want to encourage you this morning, this is a complete misunderstanding of the concept of trusting Christ. It's a misunderstanding of him being Lord because both require giving control of our life to him both require yielding ourselves to him and living completely for him you know i was up late last night and i i decided to listen to one of my dad's old messages they're on youtube and that was fun because obviously i haven't talked to him for a couple months and just to see his face and hear his voice and he was preaching about that there's no substitute for jesus and he said something that i had never heard before He said in the New Testament, the word, uh, after the book of Acts, in the New Testament, the word Savior is only used four times. But the word Lord is used 604 times. You see, we talk about salvation, Say, you need to trust Jesus, you need to be saved, you need to be saved. But, But there's something that comes after salvation that's our responsibility, and that's for him to be Lord. See, Lordship is... I give complete control of you. I yield completely to you. I trust completely to you. My life, not my own. You bought it, so you own me. And that makes us uncomfortable because we're like, ownership, that's kind of weird. That's like you're a slave. Yep, the Bible says we're slaves to righteousness. But Christ doesn't treat us like a slave. He considers us his children. I don't put my kids out in the yard tied up to chains and say I own you you're my slaves do my jobs cut the grass weed the yard and I might throw you a scrap of bread nope my kids get the nicest beds I can buy the nicest sheets I can buy we give them nice meals we treat them wonderfully why because we love them They owe us everything. We gave them life. We've put them through school. We've bought all the things they need. We let them drive the cars. Heaven help us, pray for me. (laughs) We give them what they need. They owe us. But we don't treat them like slaves. We treat them like the children that they are. Lordship is saying, oh, like we just sang, I love you, Lord. Your praises I will sing. Heaven shouted the day I got saved. Now, my life, it's yours. It's yours. You're my Savior, but you're also my Lord. And if we don't live that way, if, if, we're, if we're saying, well, Paul, come on. I love the Savior part, but I don't love the Lord part. We're not understanding what Christ has done. See, when we're still trying to exercise our freedom and we don't want limits on what God can tell us to do, we're not really serious about lordship. We're not really serious about being his disciples. We know we're doing this when Jesus says, keep my commandments. And the response is, well, that's a little too restrictive. I need, I need my freedom. Or when he says, trust me. Well, I need a little bit more proof. If you could send a sign, that would be wonderful because then I could know I really need to trust you. Or when he says, love me more than anything or anyone else. Well, I got a couple other things I love a lot. Some things I don't really want to give up. Some people that I want to be in relationship with that are a hindrance to you, but that's okay. I love you, Lord. I really do. I love you. Or when he says, serve me. And we say, well, I got a lot of interests. I got a lot of priorities. Some other people step up. I heard that announcement about serving, but I don't really want to do that because it requires me holding a baby and I'd rather go to church. Or when he says, call on me. I don't really know how. and I'm a little uncomfortable praying and, 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 and maybe it'd be easier just to worry. Or when he says, train up your children to love me and to know me. And we say, well, I don't know. we got some other priorities. we got sports on Sunday. we got to make that. And, and, and there are a lot of things that they can't really come to youth group because you got this and this, 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 this. How, how seriously, and I mean this very carefully. Please hear my heart. How seriously do we take his commands as Lord? See, as a parent... Think about how you'd react if your kids gave these types of responses. When you say, you know what, you need to do this, you have chores, you need to obey me. And there's such, as we say that, there's an element of, of trust and respect and valuing of our word that we want back, right? So imagine if, they, if, we, if we gave that child or that teenager a chore or responsibility and they kind of mouth off and said, who do you think you are to tell me what to do? not going to do the stinking yard. Why would I do that? I got other things to do. I'm not doing that. They'd say that once, right? Please tell me they'd only say that once. Because we're not going to put up with that pride and that disrespect. And yet, that's the attitude that we maintain when we defy and disobey the Lord. Matthew's response, look back at it. It's not there, but you've got to read the text now. Matthew's humble response is so important as a key component of following Jesus. Because when we aren't proud and defensive, we're really able to yield to his leading. So the first thing he didn't do was respond arrogantly. Second, Matthew trusted that Jesus was worth following. He trusted that Jesus was worth following. Now, that's more of an issue than we might think, especially because Jesus has been so redefined and and devalued and marginalized by our culture that the majority of people hear the name of Jesus and they're like, yeah, whatever, I'm going to ignore that and dismiss that. Now, we know that's the enemy's plan. And sadly, it's been really effective as he's introduced so many other options to draw people's interest away, like people who can't sing without using auto-tune. And yet have a hundred, hundred and fifteen, hundred and twenty million people hanging on their every word when they tap out something 100, under 140 characters and they tell about the banality of their life, and you oh, 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 look, there's another tweet, I gotta retweet, I gotta send an Instagram. That's what it's come to because the enemy has said this is more important than Jesus. Here's the thing. Jesus hasn't been disproven and the evidence for him is incontrovertible. But, But billions of people today still reject him and doubt him and resist him. And we need to do something about that. But maybe what should concern us even a little bit more is that many people People who say they trust Jesus, people who say they're His followers, lack consistency and spiritual maturity, even though God has shown them His mercy, and even though they have suffered trials and hardships that the Lord's brought into their lives for the express purpose of breaking them and bringing them back to Himself and, and to convince them that they really need Him, but they still resist. Now, if that's you this morning... Let me ask you a very tough and direct question. What will it take to convince you? What will it take to convince you to stop living for yourself and to yield to him? Because the constant lie of the enemy is, you don't need the Lord. And he keeps telling even Christians that. So it's in the times that we hit rock bottom... Where, where, where everything kind of collapses that our long-term conviction and our long-term faith is really tested. I have seen people who cry out for help from the Lord, when there's a significant crisis. It, it could be their marriage, it could be something with their kids, it could be a job loss, it could be health problems, list goes on and on. And, and they're crying out, and they're saying, Pastor, please come talk to me and help me, and I need the Lord, and, and please pray for me, and we do. And then once the trial passes, they go right back to the old way of living. It's, it's like they never even learned what happened. So you know what the Lord does? He repeats the lesson. And sometimes he does it in a different way. And the same pattern takes place. I've witnessed this so many times as a pastor over 30 years, and it just depresses me. So what will the breaking point be? What will it take to totally live for him? See, when you look at Matthew He doesn't have to endure a crisis to be convinced. He knows a little about Jesus. He knows that Jesus is standing before him saying, follow me. And there's no question about what he's going to do. So so why do we still have questions? Why do we still have doubts? Why do we still have hesitations about whether Jesus is worth following? He's done far more to convince us. Wonderful blessings and very pervasive trials. And we need to be so careful. Listen now. Holy Spirit help us. We need to be so careful. Not to maintain a stubborn. Resistant spirit. That keeps needing convincing. There's nothing more. That God needs to do. To convince us. That he is fully worthy. Forgive us Lord for even saying that. That he's fully worthy of being trusted and followed. And several times in Scripture, including five chapters before in chapter four, the Lord says, don't test me. Don't test me. So are you convinced this morning? Are you convinced he deserves your total trust? Are you convinced he deserves your unquestioned obedience? Matthew was. Third, let's go quickly. See that he prioritized what was most important. Matthew prioritized what was most important. Without hesitation, he leaves his responsibilities as a tax collector because it was no longer as important. Now there's no question that he lost his job, right? There's no question that he lost revenue, that his reputation now was tarnished because he walked away, that people were ticked off at him, that that he certainly had no future job security at this point because the guy left his post. But here's the thing. Matthew realizes that none of that was as valuable as following Jesus. That that none of that mattered compared. Now compare this again to parenting. Is there anything more frustrating than when a child does something other than what you've asked them to do? How many are going to witness with me on this this morning? There's nothing more frustrating than when we tell a child what to do and they don't do it. Especially when they're doing something far less important like TV or a video game or their phone or just staring into space. (laughs) Where their priorities are put ahead of the responsibility. Now, how often do we do that with the Lord? Jesus says in chapter 6, Seek first the kingdom of God. And then everything else is important. Are we we pursuing things with eternal value that will mature us and make us more like Christ and draw us closer to the presence of the Lord? Because being a follower requires change. And change requires sacrifice. And sacrifice is necessary to be a disciple. Some of those sacrifices will be small. Our comfort our time, our, our, our use of money, our hobbies, our habits, whatever. Those, those are small things in life. Others will be more significant. We have to get rid of unholy habits. We have to stop immoral relationships. We have to make changes in our lifestyle. There may even be jobs you can't pursue or relationships you can't continue or, or places you can't live even though there are opportunities because that would gratify us more than gratify the Lord. So there's sacrifice. But this is how we show our love and our gratitude to Jesus Christ for saving us and changing us forever. So if we have to make some changes, so be it. Matthew sees Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. He says, that's way more important than this. Way more important than having people spit at me and yell at me and curse me and and me collect money for the Romans. I don't need to do that anymore. This guy's telling me that I need to be his disciple, so I'm going there. Fourth, Matthew followed immediately. Matthew followed immediately. And there's a very important spiritual principle here in this text that we need to get this morning. And that is that faith and obedience should never be delayed. Faith and obedience should never be delayed. There's an old surfing phrase, I think I've told it to you before, that he who hesitates, let me say it again, I speak for a living, can you believe it? He who hesitates is lost. You know what that means? That means when the wave is rising up, you've got to make a decision. And if you don't decide correctly, when that wave is cresting, if you make the wrong decision, if you hesitate and go, gee, I don't know, let me see, what's the arc on that? How fast is that going? You're, you're, you're in the wash at that point. I had an example of this my daughter reminded me of this week. When I was about 11 or 12, we were out in California. And I went to the Pacific Ocean for the first time. And, and I was kind of playing in the waves, and the waves were were huge. I mean, we grew up going to the Jersey Shore and going to the North Carolina Beach, so I I knew waves. These waves were unlike anything I'd seen. And I'm out there playing in the surf. My family's up on the beach. Why I was out there, I have no idea. And all of a sudden, I saw this humongous wave coming at me, and I'm like, that's not good. Now, I had a decision to make because I was in proverbial no man's land. So I had two choices. I could run back to the beach and hopefully outrun the wave, Or I could dive into the wave, which scared me because it's always kind of freaked me out to dive into the wave. And this wave was big. And I thought, I might not come out on the other side. So I made the foolish decision to go back. And I got nailed. I felt like I was underwater 30, 45 seconds. I was scraping along the bottom. I was rolling. I had absolutely no control of my body. I was completely out of breath. The wave didn't seem to stop. And finally, when I was just about to run out of air, it smoothed out. I raised up. My mom was looking at me. I think she was kind of laughing because I was probably only under for like 10 seconds. It felt like a week and a half. She's like, I guess you didn't make the right decision, right? You think, Captain Obvious? No, I made the wrong decision. I hesitated. And I made a decision that was poor. You and I have to choose which way we're going to go. Elijah says to Israel on Mount Carmel, choose this day right now whom you're going to serve. In other words, enough spiritual fence sitting. Make a decision. Because he who hesitates is lost is even more true spiritually because it's about eternal life. So how we respond and how quickly we respond reveals so much. Back to parenting one more time. I haven't had a bad parenting week. I don't know why I'm just talking about parenting so much, but I see there are a lot of parallels. It's frustrating to have to say something three or four times, right? Right? Yes, thank you. And then what? What'd you say? Or or you don't hear anything. And then I love the response. Can I finish what I'm doing first? Sure. That's great. You know what? I'll just stand here and wait. My stuff isn't important. You go, go on, go do your thing. You know, take 30 minutes. That's my gentle response every time. You know that's true about me, right? How about you get down here right now? See, what that's doing, even though in many ways with children it's innocent, they're just preoccupied with what they're doing. But what it does to us is it communicates doubt that our word is a priority. And it shows a kind of simple unwillingness to prioritize what we say. Now, again, think about this spiritually when we're convicted that the Word of God is right, how many know the Word of God is right this morning? When we're convicted that the Word of God is right, and that God's leading is perfect, there will be no hesitation, there will be no debate, there will be no discontentment, because the immediacy of our faith and our obedience reveals how mature we are. The immediacy of our faith... And our obedience says, I love you, Lord. Delay and debate signals doubt and disobedience. And when stubbornness and pride gets mixed into that mix, it gets very ugly. So I want to encourage you and and challenge each of you, myself this week, to be faithful, to obey God immediately. When we study His Word and we see something that He's telling us to do, to obey it immediately and without any compromise. When we hear the Spirit of God speaking to us and convicting us and saying, "Uh uh-uh, don't you do that, that we don't bargain it, that we don't justify it, that we don't debate it. We just say, you're right, Lord. I'm going to do exactly what you tell me. Because it should be immediate. Fifth, let's try to conclude. This is an important outcome of the first four. Matthew was willing to have his life change. Matthew was willing to have his life change. Now, why would he do that after only two words? It wasn't just because Jesus singled him out. It wasn't because Jesus was the new trend. There was something that drew him in. There was something that appealed to him. And it wasn't just a logical, intellectual uh, a choice that he could leverage and gain advantage out of that and get more clients because he, now he's following Jesus and look at all his fun. He wasn't, he wasn't angling at this point. And it wasn't an emotional choice. Jesus said, oh, Please follow me. He said, follow me. This is your choice. Follow me. Instead, it was the fact that when we meet Jesus and we really open our heart and our mind to him, you know. You know, you know that he is the only one you need. Matthew's sitting there. The crowds are coming up. Jesus says, Follow me. And Matthew doesn't hesitate for a moment. Now, think about his position. He's hated, he's resented. He's on the outside socially and professionally. He's collecting taxes for Herod. But any Jew that went to a tax collector like Matthew knew that he was collecting to to support the Romans. So he's despised. You may be here this morning, you have a, a similar stigma attached to your life. You've done a lot of stuff in your life. There's a lot of junk in your past. And you don't think that even a loving, gracious God would be able to forgive you and cleanse you and restore you because there's so much. Or maybe people look down at you. Maybe they have disdain like most people had for a tax collector because you're different or you're insecure, or you're shy, or you're self-conscious, or whatever, and you don't think you could be accepted. You heard the words earlier about being accepted as a, as a child of God, but but you don't buy that. Your family situation's been so messed up, you can't imagine a father that would love you. Please, please, please hear me this morning. Salvation is for anyone. Salvation is for anyone who confesses and trusts in Christ Christ to save them and cleanse them and forgive them. The Bible is full, full of people who are outcasts being saved. Murderers, adulterers, liars. And actually all those words apply to us. Because the Bible says if you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. The Bible says if you get angry and emotional and frustrated and you just... That's, that's committing murder in your heart. You're just as guilty. All of us have sinned and fallen short. There is none that is righteous. Not one. All of our sins are like filthy rags. And our sin has made all of us an outcast. And that's why Jesus Christ came. He came to take my sin and to take your sin And to crucify it so you and I don't have to be outcasts under bondage anymore. Now we can be released and freed and cleansed and purified. And the call of Matthew illustrates that. Look look at the verses that come after verse 9. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, the, the conclusion is this was Matthew's house. So, so he got up, and Matthew said, hey, come to my house. You need to have some dinner. So Jesus goes there, and, and, and he, who shows up? Well, the only people that want to be a town tax collectors are who? Tax collectors. He doesn't have any friends. So they go to the house. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees, oh, the Pharisees, the religious people, when they saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? I.e., why is he eating with the dregs of society? Nobody wants them. They're filthy. We're clean. We're pure. We're righteous. Look at us. That's the question. When Jesus heard this, he said, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the religious leaders look down their noses, not only at the tax collectors and the sinners, but now they look at Jesus and they go, see, see, he cares about people nobody should care about. He's hanging around with those outcasts. And Jesus says, you're missing the point. This is what I came to do. I didn't come to save people who see themselves as righteous on their own because they don't have a need for me. They're not going to repent and yield to me and make me Lord because they don't think they need me. I've come to call those who are spiritually sick and know it and say, I need somebody to heal me. That was Matthew. That's you and me. Without Christ, we were the dregs and the outcasts and the sinners. But he says, I've come to seek and save that which is lost. And look how it changes us. One real quick final characteristic. Matthew made a lifelong commitment to Jesus. Two words, follow me change him forever and that moment on he never went back to his old life he never even looked back like lot's wife who looked back in, in regret he never looked back and multiple passages throughout scripture said that he followed jesus faithfully He walked with Jesus and the disciples. He's in the upper room before the crucifixion. He's back in the upper room when the Holy Spirit comes and fills them. He stands with the disciples at Pentecost, and he's one of the apostles as the gospel started to spread. He stayed in Jerusalem for at least 15 years and, and spoke to the Jews and to the Gentiles about Jesus Christ. Then, after he wrote this gospel account that we just read, he went around the world and he served it as an evangelist, going to Persia, which is Iran, and Ethiopia. And they don't know, but he either died in Egypt or Italy. So he got around. Two words. Follow me. Yes, I'll do that immediately because you're worth following and I don't want to look back and I don't want my old life anymore. I want you because you're my Savior and I'm going to make you my Lord and you are my life forever. That's what following Jesus looks like. So how do you and I compare?